The following account is based on real people and actual events. It's 1839 on the Missouri-Iowa border. This Uriah Gregory, he kept showing up trying to collect taxes. Well, Henry Heffelman, my husband, he had no other choice but to arrest him. Well, word got back to Governor Boggs that some local yokels had kidnapped Uriah Gregory. So that's when Governor Boggs then sent territorial troops up to northern Missouri. He was going to get Uriah Gregory released, and he was going to show those Iowa Territory people what to. Well, the first territorial governor, Lucas, was not having any of that. He was not going to be bullied by that Missouri governor. He called out his troops. Wait, Rosemary, did she just say troops? Yeah, Missouri and Iowa almost went to war with each other. It's kind of a crazy story, but they were fighting over a roughly 10 to 15 mile wide strip of land across their shared border. When was this? It actually happened before the Civil War. Both sides got pretty heated. In the name of the God of mercy and justice, gentlemen, let this monumental piece of absurdity, this phenomenal but cruel blundering, have an end. So just to be clear, since this was in the early 1800s, this woman's not 200 years old. No, that's Lois Jean Ellison. She's from a part of Iowa that was in the disputed territory. When she heard about the story of the Honey War, she did some research and discovered this forgotten chapter in our state's history. So in today's story, she'll be Liza Jane Heffelman, a character she created to do reenactments. Ellison, or Heffelman, and a few other people will be helping us tell the story of the Honey War. But before it's over, sheriff will be pitted against sheriff, someone will be kidnapped, and pitchforks will be involved? Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, misunderstood stories of Missouri's past and try to figure out what really happened, why did it happen, and how has that shaped the state today? I'm Christopher Houston. You're listening to Show Me the State on KBIA 91.3 FM. You can find these episodes on kbia.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to the show. Before we get to all of the drama, let's figure out where exactly we are talking about. Well, we're headed to the original northwest corner of the state of Missouri. Troy Hayes may know the Missouri-Iowa border better than anyone still walking the earth. About 10 years ago, Hayes retraced the boundary line. His goal was to recover the monuments the U.S. Supreme Court ordered be placed along the line after the dispute in the 1800s. Through the course of that project, we were able to recover 21 of the 23 monuments that were set. And the corner we're going to is kind of unique because it was actually the starting point for the original survey of the north boundary when Missouri became a state back in around 1820. It started with the Louisiana Purchase and the War of 1812. The federal government wanted to reinforce its claims on the region and needed to know what land belonged to the United States and what land was part of the Osage Territory. The original survey of the Indian boundary uh, was done by a surveyor named Sullivan. 
John C. Sullivan and a team of surveyors in 1816 start about 100 miles north of Kansas City. And it, it went from this corner east to the rapids, uh, what he called the rapids in the Des Moines River. Sullivan's line wasn't marked well, and his mention of the rapids becomes a problem. It's not clear to surveyors if he means the Des Moines River, which is in a small section of northeastern Missouri, or if the ending point should be the more famous rapids Des Moines in the Mississippi River. There was some controversy as to where the, the state boundary was. Missouri becomes a state in 1820. Then in 1836, the state annexed additional land, adding six counties to the northwest corner of the state. At this point, the state hires a surveyor named Joseph Brown. This time, Brown starts at the other side of the state, from the east, and marks his line heading west. But at the start, he can't find the rapids that Sullivan mentioned. He continues up the river until he finds rapids. He ends up 14 miles farther north. So he's at the wrong angle as he makes his way across the state to the western border meaning Missouri claims about 200 square miles of land from the Iowa Territory. The land in question kind of looks like a really thin slice of pie with the fatter end at the eastern corner of the state. Both Missouri and the Iowa Territory see the land as theirs and decide to attempt to govern and collect taxes throughout the strip of land. And this is where it gets hairy. In order to understand the dispute, we need to understand who occupied the area. We need to understand the Hairy Nation. You see, the group that occupied this disputed territory were known as the Hairy Nation because of their raggedy appearance. Many of these people settled from states like Virginia, Ohio, and Indiana. Pieces of Native American culture are still prevalent, and so is intermingling of races and cultures. Squatters looking for freedom of religion, morality, and civilized life also occupy the area. Overall, scrappy ruffians are seen as wild, but also smart enough to make trouble for government leaders. And they were cunning. Members of the Hairy Nation realized that no one in charge really knows what's going on. So when tax collectors from Missouri show up, they entertain the officials, but get out of paying by saying they reside in the Iowa Territory. And when collectors from the Iowa Territory show up, suddenly they are residents of Missouri. They use the confusion to their grand advantage. Then the ruckus really got going when Uriah Gregory from Clark County, Missouri, was sent by Missouri Governor Laburne, Laburne Boggs. Oh, he was quite a character, if you know those Missourians. And uh, Governor Boggs sent him up there to collect taxes. That's Lois Jean Ellison, the reenactor. She's from Clarinda, Iowa, a town that currently resides in the formerly disputed territory. And remember, for this story, she's Liza Jane Heffelman, wife of Iowa Sheriff Henry Heffelman. But a couple of the tax collectors, they couldn't collect any money, so they said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just cut down these two or three great big trees and get some revenue from that. Well, those trees were where the bees collected their honey. So in 1839, about three years after the new line is drawn, 
Missouri tax collectors decide to cut down bee trees. Wild bees would make their hives in trees, and since honey and beeswax were lucrative commodities, people living in the area have been cultivating these trees for years and want to control the resource into the future. And so they cut that down, got the honey from those trees, and got some revenue off of it. Well, for those of us people back then, you don't understand, there wasn't any sugar back there or even any sugar cane. That honey was our only way of sweetness back then. Hives weren't the only valuable commodity in jeopardy. Freedom was also hanging in the balance. If Missouri gained this land, slavery would become legal throughout that little thin pie slice. Iowa wouldn't become a state for another seven years, but when it did, it would be a free state because of the Missouri Compromise. So, my land of Goshen's, we were hot to trot. We were just not going to have anything to do with those guys. The governors, Boggs in Missouri and Lucas in the Iowa Territory, began exchanging nasty notes, rattling sabers and threatening each other in the newspapers, which amused the hairy nation. But... Then it escalated. And then my husband was Van Buren County Sheriff. And this Uriah Gregory, he kept showing up, trying to collect taxes. Well, Henry Heffelman, my husband, he had no other choice but to arrest him. So he arrested him and took him off to jail. Well... Word got back to Governor Boggs that some local yokels had kidnapped Uriah Gregory and they were holding him someplace. Missourians tried to liberate Sheriff Gregory to no avail. Law enforcement continues to battle for authority while the governors spit words at each other. But no decisions are being made about the correct line. And the residents are left agitated, not knowing where their loyalty lies. Oh yeah, and the federal government wants nothing to do with this fight. Washington, D.C. essentially rolls its eyes, seeing the dispute as its children in the West not playing nicely together. But not knowing where you belong is a big deal to the people in the region. So serious that Missouri's Governor Boggs sends troops to the border to save Sheriff Uriah Gregory from the Iowans who are holding him. The first territorial governor, Lucas, was not having any of that. He was not going to be bullied by that Missouri governor. And he had dealt with some territorial issues before in Indiana. So he called out his troops and about 1,500 of the Iowan people uh, decided that they would show up. And they were on the north side of the line. Calling them troops is putting it nicely. Both the Missouri and Iowa militias were a ragtag bunch. And so here were these two troops looking across at each other. Ooh, and they had, well, they had quite the military militia. They were not issued uniforms. They had no tents. Well, they didn't even have any food. They had to break into local grocery stores to get the food. It was also November, December. There was no real plan. Morale was low. And like many battles in history, the biggest opponent seemed to be the weather. Then let me tell you about the, their weapons. They were pitchforks, sledgehammers, 
all sorts of miscellaneous weapons, sometimes some squirrel rifles. Reports say one man brought a dasher from a butter churn, while another wielded an old-fashioned sausage stuffer. But who was going to give the word to actually shoot? So a group from both sides came together to try to end their misery, essentially telling the governors to grow up and resolve this in a responsible way. For the militias, that's the problem. No one was calling the shots. The men began to resent leaving their families. On December 12th, 1839, was when both governors finally accepted a resolution. It was agreed to let the state legislators continue to grapple with this problem. While Missouri legislator Thomas L. Anderson even said, in the name of the God of mercy and justice, gentlemen, let this monumental piece of absurdity, this phenomenal but cruel blundering have an end. And that was when the honey wars ended. But these men who had just half starved themselves were angry. They were still ready for a fight and shots were fired. But no one was hurt. On the way home, Missouri militia split a quarter of deer meat in half. They tacked the venison to a tree, they named each side after a governor, and the men took turns shooting at the symbolic representations of the governors that sent them out to freeze and starve in the middle of nowhere. When done, they buried the rotting carcasses representing the governors in a solemn ceremony symbolically putting the honey war to rest. The men were quite happy to disband and go back home. So then you'd think, well, they'll get this settled. (laughs) Uh, Do you know politicians? We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to KBIA 91.3 FM. You're listening to Show Me the State, our new podcast about folklore in Missouri. We untangle the complicated tales and try to figure out what really happened, why it happened, and why that matters now. If you value this kind of journalism and storytelling, consider going to kbia.org and click the donate button. Okay, now back to the program. This borderline dispute was caused by two different surveyors drawing different lines and being confused by those elusive rapids. And even though the politicians were done with it, this still really matters to the hairy nation. Not just to settle this dispute, the line has real implications on identity, culture, and even their freedom. And it doesn't get resolved until Iowa becomes a state in 1846. By 1840, both Missouri Governor Boggs and Iowa Governor Lucas are no longer in power. Boggs was voted out, and Lucas is fired as an appointee when President Martin Van Buren loses the presidency. So the interpersonal vengeance also has faded. Since the federal government didn't want to step in, the two states ended up suing each other once Iowa's boundaries were written into its state constitution. The case, Missouri v. Iowa, makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court, In 1849, the court rules that the original boundary drawn by John C. Sullivan in 1816 is the correct boundary. 
So the land belongs to Iowa. And even though it didn't exactly fit the geography or the the clear legal definitions of where the borders were supposed to be in each state constitution, that was the line that everybody was familiar with. That was the line that people's property had been defined around. That's Dr. Derek Everett. Since the Honey War hasn't been well documented, his research into the conflict informed a lot of our knowledge of the events that occurred. Dr. Everett is also an expert on how boundaries shaped the American West. And so trying to enforce a different boundary would create a nightmare of of complications for the people who were living in that region. This decision that was made in 1849, 10 years after the Honey War, set a precedent that continues to this day. Basically, the earliest line stands. People are most familiar with the first line because it was first. Businesses, lives, identities are built around the line. Changing it would be wildly impractical. This ruling by the Supreme Court is still precedent and is actually still cited sometimes, though not as often as when America was still being settled. The timing of the Supreme Court decision came at an interesting point in history. After decades of not knowing their identity, the Harry Nation finally got a resolution. And it's at this turning point for America in terms of identity. I think that's one of the most fascinating questions about this honey war and the dispute between Missouri and Iowa is the creation of identity that we think of state boundaries as invisible lines, as, as, as goals when you're on a road trip. And as soon as you've crossed that invisible line, all right, well, I'm that much closer to wherever I'm going. And yet those invisible lines create identities that are important for people who live on both sides. You're proud to be a Missourian. You're proud to be an Iowan. And you don't want to be on the other side because that's not your identity. That's not who you want to be and, and the community that you've embraced. How did slavery play into the identities and what was kind of the the battle in the Honey War about uh, where the border would be? The conflict in the late 1830s between Missouri and Iowa Territory had a strong subtext of slavery. It wasn't blatantly expressed too often, but uh, it, it was mentioned a few times. But the general consensus in Iowa was that this would be a place of individual family farms, that, that slavery was not going to exist here. It would be what was called at the time free soil. For many people in the North before the Civil War, we, we think of this as a question of pro-slavery versus anti-slavery, that the South was pro-slavery and the North was anti-slavery. And that's not really the case. Many Northerners, uh, white Northerners, were called free soilers in that they didn't care whether slavery existed where it already was. They just didn't want it to expand into places on the Great Plains in particular. And slavery wasn't the only issue in limbo during the time. There's a, a famous concept that the Civil War changes the way we think of identity in the United States. That before the Civil War, the idea was the United States are. When you would talk about the United States, the United States are this, are that, because you were thinking of the states as individual pieces held together in this union. And after the Civil War and after the federal government's uh, uh, success at the end of the Civil War, the concept shifts to the United States is that we become one solid unit with divisions within it, with identities within it in states and cities and counties and so on. On a smaller scale, the residents in the Harry Nation were grappling with similar identity issues. 
there's so many people from so many places headed into this new prairie settlement uh, to the north of Missouri that being an Iowan gives them a sense of unity, a sense of identity that they didn't have because they're coming from so many different places. Being a Missourian had already been pretty well established, and now you are you are creating your identity in contrast to the stronger, more established one to the south. And, and the fact that Missouri is challenging you for where exactly your identity begins, this helps to draw people even closer together. And Governor Lucas in Iowa is famous for, for the rallying cry, death to the invading pukes. And I guess we should say, when we say puke, we're talking about vomit? That's the message that the newspapers were giving, that if <laughs> the state of Missouri had taken a puke, then I, I guess puke was used in that sense in the 1830s, too. So it's nice to know that some words have stood the test of time. They stick around, uh, at least with uh, 12-year-olds. <laughs> So when Iowa raises the rally and cry death to the invading pukes, they feel that they are under attack by Missouri, that this large, wealthy, influential state is now attacking this poor, defenseless, shivering, trembling territory to the north that's, that's just trying to protect what it considers its own. There was a, 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 a long-standing joke in the boundary region that would still be told uh, by the middle of the 20th century that there was a farmer that uh, was after the boundary had been confirmed by the Supreme Court in 1849 there was a farmer on the Iowa side and that he expressed his great relief that he had been assigned to Iowa and not Missouri because he had heard stories that the climate and the soil of Missouri was just terrible. And so now that he knew he was in Iowa, he was safe, his crops would be great because they were on the proper side of that line. And, and that speaks to the identity that, of course, I mean, your, your farm is exactly where it was yesterday. It doesn't matter where the Supreme Court uh, assigns it, but you have chosen your identity and, and you're glad that your identity is safe. Okay, well, we're on the state boundary right now. We're back with Troy Hayes, the current day surveyor hired by the state a few years ago to retrace Missouri's northern boundary. Producer Rosemary Belson ventured out with Hayes on a small road trip to see the still standing monument. Well, we've got a cornfield to the north and a cow pasture to the south. It's pretty typical uh, rural northwest Missouri. And Best place in the world, as far as I'm concerned. The cornerstone was pretty far out there. Unless you know what you're looking for, you're not likely to stumble upon the monument. Well, this, this is the iron monument that was placed in 1850 at the original northwest corner of the state of Missouri. Kind of a four-sided point, uh, similar to what the Washington Monument looks like. And it's stamped Missouri. On the south side, we're standing south of it, looking north. And then if you come to the, to the other side, it uh, says Iowa. This was the starting point, so every 10 miles from here to the east was a kind of a smaller version of this. Besides recovering these monuments, 
Haze marked each location's GPS coordinates. You know, we have a lot of friendly banter back and forth with the folks up in Iowa, you know. You kind of identify with, you know, where you happen to fall in relationship to those boundaries. Even if boundary markers are moved, another honey war isn't likely. But that war showed Missourians and Iowans that it's not necessarily about the line itself. It's about the communities you form and the cultural identity you take on together. Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Rosemary Belson produced this episode. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Fumuliner. Our theme music and original scoring was created by Columbia Band Loose Loose. Thanks to the Reynolds Journalism Institute and to the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. <laughs>